0: I your Bible is telling me to John chapter 18. And let's pray together if, before we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gospel we have to proclaim. I thank you for the finished work of your beloved Son, Holy Spirit. Help me to speak well of Jesus, whose name I pray. Amen. If you remember last Sunday if you're with us we looked at the first fourteen verses of chapter eighteen John chapter eighteen and the next this week and next week we'll be jumping in and out to uh, out of the rest of the chapter to bring out different points so today we'll read verses twelve to fourteen and then nineteen to twenty four and then next week we'll read fifteen through to eighteen and then twenty five to the end of the chapter. So John 18, 12 to 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, but he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it be expedient that one man should die for the people. And then will you jump with me to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Aniston sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Next week we'll be looking at Peter and... The verses around that. In verse 12, we see the arrest of our Lord Jesus. And in verse 13, it says, First they led him to Annas. And when you read the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and compare them with John's record of the events, what we see here in John's Gospel is a section which does not come in the Synoptics. It is adding clarification, it is adding insight. The Spirit of God so moved upon each of the Gospel writers to record for us, to leave for us the Biblical record that we might have all that is necessary and that we might be in a position of not needing anything that is not there at all. But we're going to focus directly on this occurrence, John's account. It speaks about Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. But first of all, what we're dealing with here is not really a trial. But it's a trial in the sense that someone has been called to give an account for certain things. Someone is in a position of judge or jury, accuser, but it's actually a mockery. Let's never forget that. It's a mockery. One commentator said this, in the annals of jurisprudence, no travesty of justice ever took place. That was more shocking than this one. So what we're dealing with in the trial of Jesus is a travesty of justice. We're infuriated at injustice, aren't we? There's nothing that winds me up more than injustice. Or if I think somebody is suffering injustice. And that is... I guess right, because it's a a sense of right and wrong, a sense of moral purpose. Therefore, when we encounter injustice, we're quick to detect. The people in John 18 are not arbitrary judges of Christ. They are his accusers. So let's try and deal with these verses just by asking three questions. What do we know of the accusers? I hadn't looked at it in, in in the same detail before this week, and I found it very interesting. What do we know of the accusers? Secondly, why should this be ruled a mistrial? Technically, why should this be ruled a mistrial? And finally, what do we learn from our Lord's Christ's example? So, what do we know of the accusers? Well, the first guy we meet is Annas. Now, Annas was the ruling power in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to know what was happening you know, in, with the religion or the politics in Jerusalem, it's important to understand the way in which Annas played it fast and loose with the Roman ruling authorities on one hand and he played the same with the J- Jewish people on the other. I don't know whether, any of you, whether this goes over all of your heads, but he was like the Godfather. And if you know what I mean, there's no better term to describe Annas than the Godfather. Because others in Jerusalem held positions, including his son-in-law, who was really the person to whom Christ should have been brought first. Caiaphas. He was the high priest. But he went to Annas because Annas was the power behind the throne. He was so much controlled. He himself had been high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. And his comprehensive grasp of everything reached its tentacles out throughout the whole superstructure of Jerusalem life. So he was responsible for taking Christ first before himself. Under Roman occupation, it's important to understand the office of high priest for the Jews had become undervalued, had become devalued. As you read through the Old Testament, you remember, the high priest was the one who was set apart, set apart by God, ordained to it by life. There was a task that was sacred. It was a task which had great blessing. And people looked to such an individual, the high priest. But under Roman occupation, because of the circumstances of life, it had become something very different. The high priest essentially became the individual who was able to climb the ladder of bribery and intrigue. Because if you were going to be high priest, you had to bow the knee to the Roman authorities and at the same time really play the part in front of the Jewish people so that they would tolerate you for as long as possible. So he definitely was playing both sides. He was definitely uh, sucking up to the Romans and making sure that he was acceptable to the Jews. And this can best be understood in terms of the problem that confronted Zacchaeus as a tax collector and people like him. The people hated Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. They hated him because as a Jew he worked for the Romans. He had a foot in both camps. He was a Jew, but he worked for the Romans. So engaging in his work, he was an extortioner. He would go to his own people, tax collectors and go to his own people and say, the Roman authorities demand from you today, let us say this week, that they put up taxes by 10 denarii. But in fact, the Romans had only put up the taxes by 8 denarii. And the 2 denarii he took. Plus the pay that he received from the Romans for being a tax collector. That's why tax collectors were so hated amongst their own people. They were fleecing the people. They were taking the salary and then taking it off the top. Well, Annas was involved in that kind of activity with far greater sums of money and far greater spheres of influence. So he was accommodating himself to the Roman authorities and at the same time being acceptable to his own people. He's prominent in Jewish history. And the reason he's so prominent is probably because he was such a horrible person. His family was notorious for their greed. His family. The Talmud records a rhyme. You can just find it. You can find it. The Talmud has a rhyme about the family of Annas. And it's not very complimentary. Woe to the house of Annas, it says. Woe to their serpents, Hiss. They are high priests. Their sons are the keepers of the treasury. Their sons-in-laws are guardians of the temple. And their servants beat people with staves. Not very nice thing to have written about your family. And then put in the Talmud. So if you ask the Jewish people, you know, Jewish person, tell me about Annas they would have probably completely rolled their eyes and said, and answered in the most horrific terms. No, Annas is a vagabond. No, he's a thief. He's a rascal. He's a hypocrite. He's an extortioner. He was the godfather in Jerusalem. He ran the whole operation. And if you step out of line, Annas would send somebody to beat you with a stave. In fact, his sons are mentioned in the Talmud because he had it he had it set up that way. He had entered into the position and then he lined the nest for his succeeding generations. Four of his sons followed him in the family business. Caiaphas, his son in law, entered the business, and he had vast wealth because of his terrible practices. If you go back to John two, fourteen to sixty, just a clarify this. In the temple he found those, Jesus found those in the temple who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, remember that, and making a whip of cords Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen he poured out the coins of their money money changers, he overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And we discovered that when it came it comes to the people came to bring sacrifice. It's imperative, if you remember, that the sacrifices were without spot or blemish. So then the inspectors who checked them in to make sure their sacrifices were acceptable. And if the inspector said no, or well, these days if the computer says no, but you know what I mean, your sacrifice is unacceptable, you'd have to go and get another one to come to worship. And outside the temple precincts in the streets around the temple, you could buy two doves for say two coins, and inside the temple, the same cost you 15. That's roughly the difference two coins outside, 15 inside. So, if you came in with two two coin doves, the, the inspectors checked them and said, No, 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 they're blemished, they're blemished. They would rule them blemish, so you had to buy more. So you were forced, in a way, to buy at the tables and the bazaars inside the temple. The bazaars in the temple were actually called the bazaars of Ants. that, 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 That was his legacy. That was his heritage. He set that up. He trained the inspectors. He told them which ones to rule blemish, which ones to rule good. And he was the master behind it all. So you, you, that's why when Jesus went into that scene and Jesus blew apart his bizarre, bazaar, right out of the temple precincts, thank you. The first chance that Annas gets to turn the t- tables on Christ, Annas took. And you can see when Annas looked at Jesus, there was no mistake about what was taking place. Because Jesus' sense of justice, Jesus' overturning the money changers and the tables had hit Annas where it hurt. They were the bazaars of Annas. And now Annas longed for revenge, to redress the balance. He's the first of the accusers of our Lord, Annas. The second is Caiaphas who's actually a pathetic puppet creature, a little man who did what he was told, presumably as a result of his father-in-law's influence. John eleven forty-nine says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And verse 14 tells us, of John 18, that it was Caiaphas, who had advised the Jews back in John 11, it'd be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas was crafty. If his father-in-law was a blatant extortioner, Caiaphas had a more acceptable front to him. He had better PR. He had no interest in justice. He was already He was always ready to elevate expediency over principle. He was always ready to take pragmatism and let pragmatism rule over truth. He spoken in favor of Jesus' death. So no matter how high-sounding his statement may say, sound to us, what essentially Caiaphas was saying, let us kill Jesus Christ, and that way we will save our hides before the Roman authorities. Anyone who chose to marry into a family like this have such notoriety or ought not to be surprised when people question his motivation. And when you read about the character of Caiaphas, you discover that he actually was rude, sly, manipulative, and a hypocrite. Matthew 26, verse 65, records then the high priest, as Caiaphas tore his robes and said he's uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. The tearing of Caiaphas's robes was a sign of sadness and disappointment. Was Caiaphas sad when Christ was about to be crucified? He was delighted. So on the outside he tore his robes, making people think he was sad. But inside he could not have been any happier. Because the Lord Jesus represented to Caiaphas an obstacle to his popularity, an obstacle to his glory, an obstacle to his prominence. Caiaphas, like his father-in-law, wanted rid of Christ. Annas was corrupt. Caiaphas was crafty, a conman. And then you've got the fellow in verse 22, the guy who struck Jesus. I don't know what... He was, a, he was a scoundrel. He was a creep. So you've got a corrupt man, you've got a con man, and you have a creep. The accusers of Christ. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. If there was an ordinary man in the place of Christ, and even an ordinary man who was guilty, would not have been deemed worthy to be treated in the way that Jesus Christ was treated. It was ridiculous, it was wrong, it was bad, it was a travesty of justice. Who is this Underlin who went down in history at John 18, verse 22? Did he want a promotion? And by striking Jesus, he put himself in the line for promotion? Was he trying to exploit the situation for his own advantage? Probably And what I want you to see is that Annas has his successors, Caiaphas has his successors, and the guy from John 18 22 has his successors. People who are prepared to jump on the bandwagon at any point. They blow hot, they blow cold. Whatever is necessary in order to achieve their own ends and to set them forward. He stepped forward and he smashed our Lord straight in the face. The Greek carries with it at least the possibility that he used one of those staves that we read about, or talked about. He may have even taken a stave and crushed it into the face of Christ. The sinless one, whose hands were bound. Is that right? Is that justice? And we're not dealing with a common criminal. We're dealing with the sinless Christ. So, what do we know of these accusers? Each of those accusers have their successors. People who, for the same reasons, have heard the word of Christ and have turned their backs. People who've turned their backs to indulge their greed. People who turned their backs on the things of the Lord because they want to be popular. People have turned their backs because they want to be acceptable. Have you ever turned your back on Jesus for any of those reasons? People have heard the word of Christ, gone out into the world. And by following Christ, it cost them. It hit them in the pocket. And they said, I'm not having that. And they were on their way. Or Christ... Following Christ meant that they would have to give up their ego or give up their popularity. I want no more of that. Or the pathetic people who would smash him in the face for some lousy promotion from a lousy high priest. One day, they and their successors will stand before the risen Christ and give an account. That's the first thing, the accusers. So why should this be ruled a mistrial? There are a number of technical reasons why this was no trial. Why it should never have been given credence. Under Jewish law, no trial. That ended with the sentence of death could be conducted at night. It was not not possible. You couldn't conduct a trial in the night that carried the penalty of the death sentence. This trial took place between 1 and 3 in the morning. It was technically incorrect. It was a mistrial. Secondly, the arrest was a result of bribery, the blood money of Judas. Thirdly, Jesus is asked to is called upon to incriminate himself. When the high priest Annas came to our Lord and says, now I want you to answer these questions, Jesus says, I do not think I should be the one answering these questions. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. It was illegal for them to ask Christ to incriminate himself out of his own mouth. Jewish law said the defendant did not say a word until the witnesses had been presented and had spoken the case against him. It was their responsibility It was the accuser's responsibility to produce the witness, not Christ's responsibility to demonstrate his innocence. Fourthly, in the cases of capital punishment, Jewish law did not allow the sentence to be carried out until 24 hours after the judgment had been given. Why do you think they were doing this in the middle of the night? Why do you think they were rushing this through? Why do you think they were doing it under the cover of darkness? They wanted to get as much done as quickly as possible to press their conclusion. At every point down the line, those who knew what was right, and they normally were such a stickler for it, did what was wrong. Now there are four reasons why they hated Christ so much. Four reasons why this was a mistrial. But the real reason it was a mistrial is the whole thing was a farce. It was never a trial at all. There was never inten- any intention of allowing Christ to stay his case. They didn't bring Christ in here to say let's have a genuine discussion, to work out truth and error. As we've been through John's Gospel, it has long since been determined that Jesus Christ was going to die. Their concern was that Jesus would die. They had lost ground, they had lost popularity, they had lost influence. They were confronted by the hypocrisy. They could not handle it. On the outside they walked around with all their robes and their external trappings and inside they were rotten to the core. They were full of vengeance inside. They were full of hate inside. It ate them up. They were full of envy. Jesus looked into their eyes and saw their hearts. And they couldn't tolerate that. They couldn't tolerate the truth. It is a mistrial. It is an orchestrated plot. You take your Bible, you go through the accounts. The same people who were Christ's accusers devised the plot. They were the ones who set the officers to carry out the arrest. They were the ones in Matthew's Gospel who sought out false witnesses. Matthew 26 verse 59 Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. The same accusers led our Lord away. The same accusers delivered Christ to Pilate. The same accusers stirred up the people to cry release Barabbas. So on the outside they 're kind of giving it the you know the you know the, the perception of a trial and underneath they're saying shout for brass. the same people who when he was on the cross shouted at him he saved others he cannot save himself so how do we learn from Christ's example in the face of all of this and we know that God is in control. We know God's wonderful plan of redemption. But in in the face of this travesty of justice, these evil accusers of Christ, how can we learn from Christ's example? Incidentally and in passing, this whole approach is not locked at this point in history. There are so many today, and you probably come across them, who operate on the exact same principle, they condemn Christ without ever having given him a fair hearing. People reject Christ without ever having read his book. People condemn Christ without ever having listened to his claims. They walk around and with a sense of bravado explain why they do not believe this. That's not even intellectually honest, apart from anything else. Beware of joining the accusing ranks of Annas as we come to the third and last question let me try and root it in our lives as much as I can which of us has not faced injustice at some time which of us have not come up against something that is just plain wrong we have been treated badly people have treated us unjustly people have slammed us against the wall Maybe at school, university, or in business, or in the family, or maybe even in a Christian organization. Many of us, as children, thought we had great injustices poured upon us, perpetrated by our high priest mothers and our Anna's fathers. I'm joking. That's probably not injustice. Although I would say, I learned this. Hopefully, their fathers and mothers need to learn to say sorry when they were grumpy for being grumpy, and when they've been guilty of injustice. You did what? No, it's okay. But we all know what it is like to be treated unjustly. We do. When someone's been unjust to us or unkind, and from within, from within, there is that great stirring. To vindicate ourselves, that sense this is just not right. I'll get him back, I'll find a way to do it, and the world says, Go, go, go. The whole value system of life is structured in such a way go. We have all the ammunition you need to get somebody back. What is the Christian response in the face of injustice? What is the example of Jesus Christ to us? Let me summarise it for you. First of all, there's a wonderful lesson here in integrity. Annas's question is more concerned with Jesus' apparent success rather than his teaching. I don't know whether you picked it up, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. The inference is that Annas' question Jesus. How many do you have? How many people do you have? How many followers do you have? Rather than about what he's saying. That's part of parcel today as well. People don't ask very often what you're saying. Some do. They ask you how many do you have in your church? Numbers, 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 numbers. But Jesus doesn't talk in those terms. What does Jesus talk about? He talks about teaching when Jesus replies in verse 20. Jesus says us talk about the only thing that really matters. Verse 20, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them they know what I said. So Jesus is able to say, ask around, you can verify my claims. There is a lesson here, and that is the blessing of a guiltless conscience. When we're confronted by oppression, when we're confronted by injustice, one of the things that allows us to put our head on the pillow and sleep at night is the blessing of a clear conscience. And Christ is able to look or say, look around, ask the people, You've heard my words, they heard what I said, ask them. And when we find that we're unable to say, ask them, ask them, ask them, it is probably because there is more than a grain of truth in the accusation against us. Now remember this, and remember this clearly in God's service, what we do. God is not just concerned about what we do, he is concerned about who we are. And what we are determines the validity of what we do. It's what I am as a man, as a husband, as a father that gives validity to the task I do at the church. Remove my credibility at the realm of morality with my wife or with my children and what I am has destroyed what I do that may not always be true for someone who's an engineer that man may can be a brilliant engineer in a moral disaster i'm not sure that we could say our prime minister is a great paragon of moral values but his professional competence is distant from his personal life than it didn't used to be but it is definitely today and he may receive accolades and be written up in mechanical journals as a great man as an engineer But his life is in shatters over here. But I'm aware. I'm aware that in the service of Jesus Christ, there is never a gap between professional competence and moral reality. What you are for the Lord Jesus Christ determines what you and I do. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith whatever you may do in the kingdom of God, as you live out your life, as you confront injustice, when you go to bed at night, check those three things. Have I had a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? For they are the expressions of genuine love. And no matter how much gush or mush or slush, and see, I can do rhyming. We may dump on the community about how nice we are. Unless, as God sees the inside, we're marked by purity, clarity, and goodness of conscience, and sincerity of faith. Then we're not worth the testimony of our lips. So, integrity is so important. And before injustice, Christ is the example par excellence. But secondly and finally, the example of Jesus Christ does provide us with a lesson in meekness. And I need this because it doesn't do me good to watch the news or read the news. It really doesn't because I get so worked up. I really do. But the example of Jesus Christ provides us with a lesson in meekness. In meekness, not in weakness. The spelling of the word, the pronunciation of it is very important. Because meekness, I may have said this before here, is power under control. Meekness is not a personality type. Because you or I may be quiet, it doesn't mean we are meek. Because we might be automatically kind and nice, humanly speaking, doesn't mean we are meek. Meekness is a work of the Holy Spirit of God within the heart of a man or a woman. It's not something you're born with. It's a work of his grace. It's exemplified in Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.23, we read those well-known words when Christ faced the terrible abuse of Calvary. And this is what it says. When they held their insults at him, 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Look at John 18, that man. He came up and for no reason at all, but just to ingratiate himself with Annas and Caiaphas and all of them, he smashed Jesus in the face for no reason at all, but to ingratiate himself with the accusers. What does Jesus do, verse 23? If what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? Do you think the handcuffs were what kept him in check in that moment? Do you think it was because his hands were tied behind his back? Otherwise he might have done something? No. No handcuffs will ever be able to constrain, control the impulsive power of our wicked, wretched, unbridled humanity. We cannot handcuff ourselves into meekness. We cannot grit our teeth and make ourselves meek. It seems to me this must be lured on the pilgrimage of life. And as we go through our journey, we need to long that we'll be made more like Jesus Christ, more like him. We know it, don't we? He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have taken that man out. And he could have put him somewhere else, even if it was just here. He could have just moved him. Just a bit away. But Jesus did not do that when he was insulted. Jesus never insulted back when they were unkind to him. When they thumped him, he didn't thump them back. But he was the one who in the temple precincts earlier recorded for us in Matthew is the one who tells the Pharisees what they are. Matthew 23 verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead but people's bones and all uncleanness. That, that, that says it so well. Is that meekness? Yes, because it's meekness is not coming to your own defence, but coming to the defence of God. Not coming to your own defence, but coming to the defence of others. So the concern of Christ in Matthew 23 as he looked on the Pharisees but what they were doing to God. Woe well to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the Lord, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat, a gnat and swallowing a camel. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is used in the defence of God. Let me summarise it from John 18. Look at this amazing irony. We have an earthly high priest, Axe, Caiaphas, and the other gentleman. I don't know really what to call him. But look at this man. The earthly high priest. Great little power, climbs the ladder of bribery and deception and corruption, exalts himself, and before him, stands the great high priest with limitless power. Christ, the epitome of justice, confronted by injustice. Christ, the epitome of love, confronted by hate. Christ, the epitome of power, confronted by this faltering nonsense. And Jesus provides for us the example that we, might follow in his steps. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. And that's a kind of tall order. Well, it is for me. How are we going to do it? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. As we rely on the Holy Spirit day by day, as we're in the Word, as we say no to unrighteousness, and we say yes to truth. May the Lord bless the word and let us each work out our own salvation with fear and trembling in relation to these things. For his glory. Amen.